Larry boy, we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Hello, you're listening to KEPW LPFM 97.3, Eugene Homegrown Radio. I am friend Catherine. I'm friend Cimarron. And thank you for listening. This is Friendly Anarchism. Well, I'm going to tell you fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. Woo! All you fascists bound to lose. Hello, and welcome back to KEPW and Friendly Anarchism. Um, today, we are going to be uh, speaking with a, um, with a guest, Sharon Smith, um, who has written an article in the Friends Journal um, and uh, about an incredible story um, uh, that deals with Quakers and racism and what's happening today. Um, so uh, we're going to dive into that um hi sharon hi how are you doing wonderful uh thank you so much for joining us um uh so you are not in oregon um uh but we're a part of a the massachusetts um a meeting in massachusetts in cape cod is that right I'm not on in Massachusetts or Cape Cod. I'm right now in Western North Carolina in Asheville. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to us all the way from Asheville. Um, uh, so, um, you wrote this article in Friends Journal, um, and can I ask? Um, uh, what was the what was the process for you? Um, there's a lot of things sort of happened in that article, and I, I'm just I'm I'm overflowing with questions. <laughs> um, well, ask me anything; I will answer. <laughs> you know what I can. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, um, let me pull up my Facebook page and see what that says about me. <laughs> That's the only way we know ourselves these days. It says I'm complex, deep, passionate, inquisitive, intuitive, creative, expressive, and so much more. So much more would be that I'm a mother, a grandmother, a mostly retired middle school drama teacher. (laughs) Um, And I'm black, Indian, and Quaker. And that the, the reason I'm black Indian and Quaker is that my mother is a New England Quaker, and in the early 50s, she decided to get even with her parents by running off and marrying a colored man. <laughs> <laughs> my father is Mohawk and the Pony. Mohawk, you've heard of, the Pony, probably not so much. That's true. <laughs> Well, I it sounds like so you're a drama teacher. I did drama. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful field. I got a lot out of it. And mm-hmm. do you think that it's been that 
that sort of that your background as a teacher has played into your experiences um, just as just as a person you know how how is that you know if we get some get some background on you maybe we can see just sort of how you relating to this meeting and what those dynamics oh. are you know okay all right well um two things i think impact um you know the experience that i'm having and the way people are interacting with me <laughs> Um, the first being that um, I was raised as a Quaker by my new, white middle-class New England Quaker mother. Mm. Um, and, but I'm a person of color. I mean, and that's obvious and clear, you know. I mm -hmm. never chose to pass for white, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, I couldn't if I wanted to. Mm. Mm. And I learned... Um, and, and um, being born an artist and somewhat mystical, because, you know, the Quaker movement is, is kind of mystical yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely a mystic uh, faith. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, um, you know, artists um, have a thing about expression and creativity and examining reality mm -hmm. and um trying to express their interpretation of everything. Um, so, um, hmm. uh, I think what, what makes it, uh, why I feel called to challenge Quakers on their racism has to do with that article in Friends Journal. Yeah. Um, because I was raised a Quaker and my mother taught me about um, continuing revelation and that of God um, in me and uh, my uh, responsibility to cultivate that part of God that is in me and to, to listen to what I'm called to do and act according to what I'm, you know, led by spirit to do. So, uh, you know, in a sense, I was taught to be a spirit-led activist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, um, and then I encountered Quakers as a, as an adult um, because my mother never did say why she kept me um, and my younger siblings from Quakers while we were growing up, even though she taught us that we were Quakers and about Quakerism. And her, she was our example of what Quakerism was. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, I went, um, I was living in Western Mass. I grew up, we grew up in New York because uh, in the early 50s, an interracial couple could not live anywhere in the country. Um, wow. And, and no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, living in living um, an interracial couple in the 50s, that's its whole own amazing story. Uh, what an what an incredible yeah. heritage to have to have that background. Right. So so when my parents were married and they lived in Harlem when I was born because that was really the only place they could live together um, as a couple. Um, and nineteen, I was born in nineteen fifty four. That was the year of Brown versus the Board of Education, mm -hmm. which um, you know was the Supreme Court case to desegregate public schools. I was 13 years old um, 
when um, Loving versus the state of Virginia to overturn anti-miscegenation laws throughout much of the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I joked that I was born an outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, but I find myself uh, being raised a Quaker when I encountered other Quakers who were mostly white, right. that there were automatic racial problems. Yeah. And it caused me to want to understand racism, so I studied. Um, and I learned a lot of things the hard way uh, because my mother, being white, didn't really, ha- I mean, she wasn't thinking in terms of critical race theory when she married my father. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure when you're in love, that's not the, that's not the first thing, thing that comes into your mind. You know, she was just doing her thing, you know. Her feminist choice was to run off and marry a colored man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> She really was not prepared for the reality that she lived as a result, mm-hmm. and not really capable of preparing her mixed race children for reality as people of color. Sure, and that right. that's definitely comes up a lot um, in Oregon, where there are a lot of uh, also like adopted um, uh, people of color, and there's it's a it's a very common story that children who grow up in in white or partially white households really that's a that's a, a real tension about how yeah. to deal with. <laughs> it was interesting. I was a nanny for a little black girl who has a white mother um, by birth, and the the dynamics there that I witnessed between by being a nanny, you know, were were very. Uh, and this is in Southern Oregon people not assuming that she was the mother, you know, things like that, that were always distressing to both um, the child and the mother, and just sort of witnessing that and the sort of the surprise on people's faces. It's like, if you look, if you look, like, she looked like her mom, you know, like, she did, (laughs) she did look like her mom, but people just got stopped at the color of her skin, and it was very, uh, it was distressing to be around, and it was, um, it was, it was just an interesting situation. You know, she had, the mom had to learn how to do Aya's hair from, uh-huh. from other people, you know, and uh-huh. it was like a lovely bonding thing for them. Um, uh-huh. But it's, yeah, so I mean. Right, uh, but then, is, the, you know, the social dynamics get really complicated um, and sometimes very destructive. Yeah. Uh, the fa- family, you know, is, is another, you know, another one of my standard lines is where there's a will, there's relative. And, um, you know, I could tell a number of stories about my mother's family and how they dealt with, you know, her marriage to a colored man in the 50s and what, how they dealt with my mother having mixed-race children um, and, you know, a whole host of um, situations and stories come up about that. Um, And, you know, I take after my father, um, and and he's black and Indian, and, you know, you wouldn't know that he was native by looking at him, but, you know, he he was raised by his Mohawk grandmother who spoke the language and, and sang to him in it. Um, and his father, you know, was in the construction trades in New York, like a lot of Mohawk men. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's why when my parents were married, they came to Harlem to live because my father had Mohawk relatives, um, oh. you know, nearby. Well, hopefully that made it a little bit of a softer landing to have. Um, well, you know, I, um, I asked my mother once, you know, how she dealt with, you know, people in the public, because she's clearly a white middle class you know, woman, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, her story, um, you know, she went to Mount Holyoke, graduated. Her dad was chairman of the religion department at Mount Holyoke. So she was raised in a fairly um, isolated, upper middle class kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, but Quaker, and very idealistic, and naive. (laughs) 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 I mean, that goes without saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) how do you think, do you think, how does the um, middle class piece fit in there? as opposed to sort of like a poor white situation versus sort of the middle class, does that have a different tone to the racism element or the naivete? I can't really tell you because, you know, hanging out with Quakers, um, the, the typical profile is white and middle class. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much what I know about. <laughs> I cannot really tell you what poor white folks are like. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't. We're we're getting um, a little bit of we're getting a little bit of rustling from your phone. I'm not sure. Okay. If there's something. Um, it's probably me brushing up against the headphones. Mm. I'll be still. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Th- thank you. That sounds better. Um, and so part of the reason why um why we wanted to talk to you today is because um you um. You've written this story in Friends Journal, um, and I want to sort of get into that because the story deals a lot with uh, with racism and Quakers. And so you talked about um, sort of coming to Quakers as an adult, um, and uh, so I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about the the story and what what happened in the uh, East uh, East Sandwich meeting. Um, and um, in the article, talked about you came to it in two thousand two. Had you already been um, a, uh, a member or attender of other meetings before then? Um, and what had what had drawn you to, um, uh, to East Sandwich? Well, uh, there were two stories there. One is what what drew me to Friends in the first place, and the second was what drew me to East Sandwich because yeah. I've been attending Quaker meetings since the early eighties. Mm. Uh, when I was going to school at UMass Amherst, and uh, my mother was born in Amherst, and it never occurred to me till I landed there as a student at UMass. Um, and then Mary Taylor, who was the oldest member of Mount Toby Friends Meeting in the area, you know, invited me and my daughter, who was five at the time, to worship at Mount Toby Friends Meeting with her. And she was still driving, and she was still alive then. And she came and picked us up and took us to worship. Um, and that was my first visit to a Quaker meeting, um, you know, worshiping with other friends. Wow. 
Wow. And I was about 26 at the time. Um, yeah. And Mary Taylor brought up the worship, and she said, um, this is, she named my grandfather, this is John Paul Williams' granddaughter and great-granddaughter, please make them welcome. <laughs> and, you know, they did, because Mary Taylor told them <laughs> <laughs> That's That's a great way to introduce someone, and you, that sounds like a really classic old Quaker lady thing to say, too, like, and that's make them exactly welcome. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> You know, and they, you know, bent all over themselves being, you know, polite and hospitable. They really did. Um, because Mary told them to. But, you know, there, there, there were, you know, some incidents later on where, you know, they just really didn't understand. So they're in New England yearly meeting. So when things got crazy in Sandwich monthly meeting on Cape Cod and they heard about it, you know, they just assumed that it was something I did and there was something wrong with me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to walk us through? I posted the story. I've just posted um, French Aaron's article on our Facebook and mm-hmm. on our Twitter. So uh, mm-hmm. anybody who would like to you can go see that. You can also email us in questions at staff at kepw.com. I mean, no, staff at kepw.org. Dot org, correct. Yeah. Yes. So if you have any questions for French Sharon, uh, please email those in. And um, do you, would you like to talk us through the events that cons- that happened? That transpired? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, and, you know, that article, you could only tell whatever you had to say in 2,500 words. That's it. Which right. Is pretty, which is pretty condensed. <laughs> but there was so much more to that story, um, but I got the basic, you know, events, the, the critical ones anyway, in there. Um, so I've been to Cape Cod before. My mother, when she retired from her New York City job, moved to Cape Cod. Um, and she's from Massachusetts, and that was where she wanted to be when she was retired. So um, I was not living with her. I mean, you know, um, I was grown and a mother myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would come and visit, and occasionally, uh, somewhere when my mother was in her 60s, she decided that, gee, you know, maybe what God is calling me to do is to, is to you know, t- work with Quakers on racism, and and um, because, I, you know, shocks me. <laughs> 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 I got all these grandchildren and, and, and grandchildren. <laughs> And she would like, you know, her relatives to come to worship, and um, she'd like to bring her grandchildren with her to first day school uh, when she could. Uh, and so when I was there, um, she used to invite me to sit and talk with the friends from Falmouth meeting, because she was attending a Falmouth friends meeting, which is part of Sandwich Monthly, but it's not the same as East Sandwich. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I knew who they were. They knew who I was. Particularly, I would visit, and my mother would invite me to talk about racism, essentially. Uh, but they were ignoring her. I mean, they were, you know, being kind of patronizing, and I was aware of what was going on. I mean, there was a time when my mother called me up. I think I was living in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and she said, you know, I, I, I wanted to give a, uh, a, a workshop on racism 
for friends, and the people at Falmouth Meeting would not allow me to have it at their meeting house. What? Because, because, but here's the argument, because race is a scientific misnomer, it's not a real thing, and talking about race and classifying people as different races is divisive. And what year was this? I'm, you're, I'm assuming this was 1850 something, right? <laughs> when this happened? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. What, when was that? What year? No, no, it was 1990 something. Oh my wow. gosh. Yeah. 2000 somewhere in there. Um. <laughs> not, not scientific. That's shocking. And you know the thing, I feel like Quakers <laughs> often, or not often, but it seems to me, especially sort of in uh, liberal circles or in Quaker circles too, there's this feeling like, well, you know, we helped end slavery 150 years ago, so we're good, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> right. So like, check that off, so that we don't have to worry about it anymore. You know. Yeah, um, gotta have a sense of humor sometimes. <laughs> Deadly serious. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And on the on the one hand, that's that's really shocking to hear um, that a meeting you know wouldn't hear about racism. On the other hand, um, that you know that makes sense. I mean, the the argument I've I've heard people you know in the last five or ten years even make the argument about like oh well racism shouldn't happen because uh, or we shouldn't talk about racism because of it's not it's not a biological construct and. Um, oh, because it, like because race is a yeah, social construct. Ex- exactly. Oh, and so oh, so it's like the other side liberal argument. Like we yes. shouldn't have to. T- we don't. Racism is not a thing because race itself is a social construct. It's like this whole new type of racism. It's that that likes to pretend that it's not. It's not real. That this isn't really a problem because uh, because race is. Um, uh, uh, it's 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 only social, so that somehow makes it, it not real. Oh yeah. You know? So do you think that the the whole I don't see color has that has that played into this? Uh, well, <laughs> some of the things people said, you know, would would shock and amaze you, um, and they were serious about it, and and they just knew I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and right. um, <laughs> it's a, yeah um i i kept journals because there were many uh, many times when you know what i said was of no consequence and there was no point in me saying really much of anything so i would just write down what was happening and what people said um and i have notebooks full of that stuff and mm-hmm. it's just going back over it is mind-boggling I'm so you know, sorry. That, so sorry. that intelligent human beings could, you know, be in such denial of reality, um, and and it helped me to to want to study more and understand what what it is, what is racism, and and um, how does it function, and why does it cause white people to lose their blankety black world. <laughs> That's a great question. You were before the show started. You were talking about um, white fragility, and yeah. So what? what yes, is, yes. Yeah. What is? Can you explain for our audience if they don't know sort of what white fragility is and how you've seen that part- in particular? Yeah, we were Quaker. just talking about that today. So 
um, white fragility is when even a small, a relatively small amount of racial stress, and we have to talk about racial stress as a separate topic, uh, becomes intolerable for white people. And it triggers a range of defensive moves designed to restore white sense of racial equilibrium um, and safety. Mm. So the behaviors that you begin to see when white people are feeling uncomfortable and the situation is racial is anger, silencing, minimizing, contesting, delegitimizing, um, and just, you know, trying to control the narrative, the processes, and the resources, you know, to, to keep it silent and to keep it away because white people don't have to deal with racial stress. They, you don't, y'all don't have the muscle <laughs> that people of color have to have for constant all day 24 yeah. seven stress around race and racism. Yeah. White I, people yeah. can protect themselves from that. So, you know, the, the white people's inability to handle any kind of racial stress or sit with any kind of discomfort and the confusion between discomfort and violence um, is what's called white fragility. I have a friend of mine who's a person of color was telling me that people compliment her all the time on how strong she is but it always makes her feel worse, and she was sort of working through why, why you know what I mean, that it doesn't feel like a compliment. And like you just said that it's something that you've like been forced through circumstance to figure out. So it's sort of, it's, so it's like that's an interesting thing, because like that strength is obviously something that's um, a positive aspect to have that sort of emotional strength, but also has this other side to it. Well, but you know, <laughs> it's white people that are creating the racial stress for people mm -hmm. of color. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> when you're when you're listing off those well, those aspects of white fragility, it sounds very much to me just sort of a list of um, emotional abuse. Like when when you're in an emotionally yes. abusive yes. relationship. Absolutely, you are so right. Okay, so so there's you know the whole narrative, especially among Quakers. Okay, and I've learned some things from my experience and learned to recognize certain patterns of behavior. You know, when people call for unity, what they really mean is compliance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. When they talk about uh, being neutral, what they really want, want to say is, we want to maintain control mm -hmm. and we want to continue to dominate and we want you to allow us to do it and be neutral about your own oppression. Mm -hmm. mm. There's sort of hidden hierarchies. So like when, when, an when there is a hierarchy and there is sort of an authoritarian system in place but then is not recognized as such and then, you know. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think that there's um, a lot of a lot of systems of oppression function in similar ways. They're not identical, but they they often have very similar they do, characteristics. They do function in similar ways, and the people who you know know and and study and teach about critical race theory will tell you that race is the glue that binds all other oppressions together. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're, we're um, I've read a number of articles. 
um, right. by by black people saying that every everything you do in social justice you have to include racial justice mm -hmm. or you're not getting to the or you're not actually doing as the kind of good that you think <laughs> or you know what I mean like you're not right. getting what you're not getting done what you're trying to get done you're not going to get justice right. without incorporating racial justice it's right. you're not you're just yeah. not and I've had Quakers tell me you know that um, class and classism are more serious issues um, than race and you know why 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 are you trying to you know get everybody to talk about race when we have bigger problems that that is so true um, and Quakers have a long yeah, history too that. of I definitely heard I mean that's part of the like dialogue right now in the whole country about politically um, trying to like talk a lot about class issues when there's this huge underlying race issue that's not being addressed fully I mean I, th well, I think th there's a lot of oppression that's not being addressed but yeah yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean yeah. yeah well but here's the thing though the, the, the origin of most of those oppressions comes out of racism mm-hmm and um, I can explain that further because <laughs> I didn't hear you go, yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> so <laughs> the notion that white people are superior and our whole class system is designed to benefit white people mm -hmm. at the expense of people of color. Mm -hmm. So that's where our class structure was that's how the American class structure was built from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have a historical understanding of how the system was constructed because race uh, or white supremacy is a systemic thing. It's not an individual thing. Absolutely. Right. So, the, so this, is a, <laughs> this is an anarchist podcast also, and sort of the anarchist theory on this is that you have wealth doesn't come from nowhere wealth comes either from resources or from labor so any what any wealth that's existed came from somebody's labor or came from some sort of natural resource so all of this wealth inequality that there's like huge amounts of money that people had that came originally from someone's labor so if the labor the the cheapest labor where you get the most profit out of somebody by stealing the most of their wages is of course slavery when you don't pay them any wages at all so you know what I mean so it's like every ounce of slavery that has happened that's the money that is now the wealth at the top of the pyramid yeah well it gets more complicated when you have uh, labor that is not labeled labor but is labeled property mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to simplify that for you and say wealth comes from exploitation, period. Mm. Yep, that's, that's a, that's, <laughs> you just said it much better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that's where wealth comes from. It comes from exploitation, and then regardless of, you know, how they are exploiting, whether it's the environment, which is, you know, or, or people, or property, or, or whatever, you know, that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, and it's important you know, I think also to think of this as, as a global system, like the United States has a, has a particular history um, with slavery and, and with uh, capitalism and ownership, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of particular histories there, but it's also part of this broader, like, colonialism and, like, European colonialism and, like, domination in the world, um, and that, like, race in the United States didn't emerge 
overnight either that it was like it's as a process um and there's a really fantastic uh series of books on this the invention of the white race that goes into the entire like history of colonialism and looks at the different components and how races played out differently in different areas um as a part of different colonial aspects um um yeah I, i'm familiar with those two volumes yeah yeah uh-huh. uh i i read a lot <laughs> yeah yeah, reading's that, great. Sorry, I, I, I was mentioning that of, mostly for our, for our listeners. I spend a lot of time. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and the, more, the more history I read, the more, you know, damning the picture becomes. Yeah. Hey, do you have any recommendations right now? I'm going to write some books down. We can write it. We can write it on our notes for the podcast for people who want to do some further reading. Um, yeah, can we do that afterwards yeah. and yeah. I can just email it to you? That's, that's a better idea. Yeah, I have a, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll I, get so ex- I get so excited. I was like, ooh, books, um, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but um, yeah, the invention of the white race is, is good. Uh, the second book is better than the first book. Because, well, the first book is interesting, but, you know, talking about the construct of race and whiteness uh, is really handled in the second book. Um, the second volume, yeah, but but there's another one called um, um, uh, Birth of a White Nation mm. by a woman named Batalora, and she goes into, you know, the history of the race construct in the Americas. Um, and, and, the, and, and, the, and, and the legal construct the history of the legal construct of race—that's fascinating. That Absolutely, sounds really interesting. Um, there's an, yeah, another book in that line is uh, "White by Law" that goes into the histories of um, of in the United States legal mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. legal constructs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one too. It's, it's a little bit dense and academic. Yeah. yeah. Birth of a White Nation is easier to read. Um. Yeah, but there's a lot of good material out there, and you know, in in when we're talking about white fragility, you know, there's a there's a distinct disconnect between what white people believe about our society and what people of color believe about our society, um, and you know, um, the, the the fragility is one thing, but then you know. Resilience can be learned. Mm. Mm. All right, <laughs> people of color have to learn it. It's a survival strategy. White people don't have to, but they can. But they can and should. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so you know, basically, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, white people are funny. I mean, I can't tell you the numbers of times I've been just simply telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, well, you know, why did you attack me? Yeah. Um, it's like, well, I'm not sure why you took that so personally. You must have thought it applied directly to you because you're kind of racist. Is that what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> So then it's like, yeah. if, you're, if you're getting defensive about something, it's like that. It's like, who are you, def- why are you defending yourself? You must have recognized it 
within yourself, right? Understood that that was... Yeah, but it's all about about who you identify Uh with in the scenario, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking about, like, people having totally different versions of the world, I read some horrific statistic that something like 70 or 80% of white cops think racism's, like, over. Like, the civil civil rights fixed it in the 60s and that it's not a thing anymore. (laughs) I don't know about cops. I don't know about cops, but I have some, you know, quick statistics to read to you. Yes, um, Two-thirds of white Americans believe that the death of black men at the hands of police are isolated incidents. Yep. Mm-hmm. White Christians are even higher at around 72%. Oh, man. That is a... That is a... That is not a good number. That is a, that is a damning statistic. Oh, oh see, I was, I was thinking we're on the radio. Is the transmitter down? Well, but, 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 but white supremacy allows white people to insulate themselves with mythology and choose to believe what reality is real because they are not impacted by the reality. You know, they have, they ha- white people, because white supremacy is constructed the way it is, mm-hmm. white people have the resources and the wherewithal to isolate and insulate themselves into little bubbles of reality, yeah. self-segregating it's called, and don't have to really be aware of what's going on with people of color. Mm-hmm. And this is really disturbing. Over 50% of white Americans think American society has mostly changed for the worst since 1950. Which is... Well, and that seems to be probably not true for the, for the people of color in this country. There's been a lot of... Well, you know... This... It has for them. It has for them. And... It is. That's what it is for them. Yeah. Now, but that's deeply disturbing when you consider what life was life for most people of color before the 1950s. Right. Right. Okay, so they've learned to separate themselves from the rest of humanity. That's that whole white superiority thing. It's people, yeah, it's like people become just like used to the system as it is. You know, around the time of May Day, um, when there was a whole lot of kerfuffle and media attention on sort of the quote unquote like riots in Portland. Uh, a couple, nobody got hurt. Uh, a cops got some rocks thrown at them. Uh, cops threw uh-huh. tons of tear gas uh-huh. into a crowd of children and elderly, <laughs> which was terrifying. And then some windows got broken and one medic got hit by a can of Pepsi but was, wasn't hurt. At the same time, almost, almost at the same time, within at least a few days, I read on the route that a white guy in Southern California just holding a drink, just in a crowd of black people, pulled out a gun and shot seven people. What? Just holding his drink, just casually. Yeah. Pulled mm-hmm. out, and, and that story, I only heard about it on the route. Like, I didn't see it anywhere else. And mm-hmm. so it's like we've just become exactly. so divorced. Well, it's become so common now that, you know, I mean, it's... It's been normalized, which is pretty sick. That's, it's disgusting. Yes, yes. Let me read you another statistic. Half of white Americans think non-white Americans receive equal treatment in the criminal justice system. Whoa. I've, I've heard that How, before. That is some what? laughable business. How do you, what? I can't even with that. <laughs> okay, half. 
of white Americans think non-white Americans receive equal treatment in the criminal justice system. Oh, man. I just heard um, my... There's a book by a mathematician who's a statistician who went into sort of the social justice realities of statistics and how they are sort of warped and messed up. Mm -hmm, And she, mm -hmm. she discovered that everybody in our country is assigned a number that is a Mm -hmm. conglomeration of their zip code and their credit score. And they use that number. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, and they use that number to um, determine how likely somebody is um, for recidivism when they end up back in the system. And if they think that you are more likely to end up back in the system, they'll just give you a longer sentence. So people from a bad neighborhood with bad credit are will end will end up automatically having longer, worse sentences just literally because of those two statistics about them. Isn't that just disgusting? Yeah, well, that brings up a question, though. When you say recidivism, they apply that that data about people's credit rating before they even are picked up and charged with anything mm-hmm. for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think well, so. I'm... Another insidious um, system at work also in public schools, based on reading scores, um, by fourth grade, uh, for-profit prisons are built, estimating, you know, by reading scores in fourth grade, how many of those kids are going to end oh, up incarcerated. Oh, that is the so... School to prison oh, yeah. I, maybe you could go in for a second about why... I can already hear white people saying, like, yeah, well, white people have bad neighborhoods and poor credit scores, so, like, why was that irrelevant... You know why are the you know white people are in public schools so like maybe speak to sort of why why that even sort of the systemic the idea of systemic oppression there's there's plenty of data on that and i don't think we ought to spend our time talking about that okay perfect actually maybe let's get back to if i knew we were going to i would have had to say that (laughs) it just got so interesting um let's go back let's actually yeah let's take it Um, back to your story about quakers and within your own meeting what happened yeah and and i think it's i think it's interesting that we talked about some of the some of the national statistics um and also sort of um in the um in the friends journal article you mentioned um that there was there was a couple things that were going on in the community around that time that happened. One was that um, an indigenous person, a Wampanoag man, um, was uh, beaten with within an inch of his life, um, and that there was uh-huh. a, there was a cross burning at a local school, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. and it was uh-huh. the response to the cross burning that triggered uh, the response from. Um, from the meeting and from uh, uh, from the Peace and Justice Committee that you were a part of. Um, and um, can you talk a little bit about that incident and and um, sure, why and why the why you felt like responding um, and why the why the meeting uh, why that felt important at that time? Okay, so um, what um, how much more time do we have? We, we've got another uh, about 18 minutes. If you want to keep going, uh, okay. we've been, we've been well, given... Okay, well, have to read the article, but essentially <laughs> what happened was there was a cross burning in the town of Sandwich in front of an elementary school 
the day after Governor Romney announced that we would be having Hurricane Katrina survivors on the military base, which abuts Sandwich, and um, to which some of the children from New Orleans might go to school. Mm. And the local police investigative unit uh, decided that it was a kid prank, not a hate crime, because it was not done right. So it was a five-foot cross, not an eight-foot cross, and whoever uh. put it together didn't know it right. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't do your cross burning correctly, like you does, get, does, you doesn't qualify as a hate crime. <laughs> wow. That's, okay. I kid you not, and the only reason I know that part of the story is because my sister's husband is Wolfenog, and his grandfather used to be chief of police in Nashby on Cape Cod mm. back in the day when mostly tribal people were on the you know, community offices in Nashby before it got taken over by white real estate developers. Um, and he always listens to police band radio, and he heard the police officers talking about why this was not a hate crime. Wow. <laughs> it's it's not the it's not the fact that it's hateful and horrible. It's the fact that your how tall your cross is. I I'm I'm just speechless right now. They decided it was not a hate crime because. The cross wasn't constructed right. It was a five-foot cross, not an eight-foot cross. Must be a kid prank, and they and they ruled it arson. Okay, instead of um, a hate crime, a cross burning. Yeah. So the local police, the the local president of the NAACP at the time was his. He he was flabbergasted. Yeah. <laughs> he, Obviously. <laughs> I, I don't even just like. I'm totally just... flabbergasted, and you know, was asking them, you know, basically, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Um, and my niece was a student, I think, in the second grade at that school. Wow. Okay, my sister's oldest, who's now in college. Um, yes. And so at the East Sandwich meeting was closest to where it happened. And they had just asked me to be clerk of the Peace and Social Concerns Committee. Mm -hmm. And I had agreed. And um, the Racial Justice Committee had done some development work. And they decided that they wanted their ministry to be about racism and local racism, not racism in Afghanistan or India or Israel or wherever, but dealing with local racial issues. And that was what the Racial Justice Committee committed themselves to. So when this happened, I said to the Racial Justice Committee, okay, this happened, what do y'all want to do? Do you want to, you know, have be a part of this or, or what? Yeah, yeah. And they asked me to draft a letter to the police chief in Sandwich and to the Cape Cod Times and the Boston Globe, you know, that we depended around, um, in essence supporting the president of the NAACP's assertion that a, that a cross-burning is by definition a hate crime. Yeah. So I... So I did that. I drafted the letter, um, and the committee approved it, and 
short of, you know, with, with minor, minor changes to what I wrote, um, they sent it out. Well, Sandwich Monthly Meeting has a very strange structure that's very archaic. East Sandwich Friends Meeting is the oldest Quaker meeting in the hemisphere from 16, I don't know what. Um, and they have an archaic British system where they have three preparative meetings that make up one monthly meeting on Cape Cod. Mm. And so that meant that they have business meeting every other month. Oh, interesting. And yes. And they have the preparative meeting, and then there's the business, the monthly business meeting where all three of the preparative meetings come together every other month. Um, and we had uh, just had <coughs> our preparative business meeting, wasn't come, you know, and uh, we weren't going to have another monthly meeting with the other two meetings on Cape Cod for a while. So we read Faith and Practice, New England Yearly Meeting, Faith and Practice, <laughs> and learned that there is no rule saying that a committee cannot write a letter in its own name. Sure. I mean, yeah, it seems like a strange thing for there to be a rule about. And in the yeah, but there is now. They made they made a rule after this happened. Yes. Wow. Wow. To to make sure that there are no other upstarts. That it became that became one of the issues of contention in the monthly meeting. They tried to say that the committee didn't have the right to send this out to the public. And what they really, really didn't like was that as close of uh, peace and social concerns, my name was on the letter. I don't even understand why, I don't, I don't even understand why that's, that your name was on it? They didn't like that you're... I was of peace and social concerns, so if we're sending a letter to the Cape Cod Times and the Boston Globe and the police chief as clerk of the committee... My name has to be on the letter. Right, of course. So why? So, so here's what my mother like... said. I was at East Sandwich, and my mother was at Falmouth. My mother said, when the letter came out in the Cape Cod Times, there's a woman at Falmouth meeting who is one of the editors at the Cape Cod Times, and she brought it to Falmouth's attention that that woman, Sharon Smith was promoting her political agenda in their name uh, and made them approve of that. Wow. So your, your, politi- your political agenda that a five-foot cross is maybe a bad thing? Like a burning cross? Like, At an elementary school? Yeah. That burning a cross at an elementary, an elementary school? school? That's like, like, come on. How, da- how dare you try and point out in the name of a meeting that they're not that they're not okay with that. I'm no. st- <laughs> I mean, and, and the other thing that, and I, I appreciate that you mentioned this in the um, in the article too, is that the that you had also brought it before an elder of the meeting and sort of check, you know, and asked about this. Um, yeah, we checked, we checked. We yeah. wanted to make sure because there were elders that were part of the racial justice on um, the peace and social concerns mm. committee. My mother helped us with that. And there were, you know, elder Quaker historians that were there when we did this. And, you know, it was the committee that sent the letter. I didn't even send it, but it had to, by proper order, put my name as clerk on the bottom of the letter. So people in Falmouth were horrified that I would dare represent them. Okay? 
I mean, and a whole host of different arguments and strategies were, you know, were creatively invented in order to deal with the issue of silencing Sharon Smith because we don't want her to represent us. So we don't want her name on anything that has to do with us. And weren't you saying that this is a this is a normal precedent to just ask? and then have the committee do it. You, like the North Pacific New Year League meeting had something like that happen, right? Where the, well, the we're, same we're, process... We're talking about this in the need... With the need of making an expedient decision. Um, yeah. The, the, the Peace and Justice Committee of the North Pacific Yearly Meeting here uh, in the Pacific Northwest um, did a, a similar process um, uh, regarding indigenous treaty rights um, and, um, and water rights. And there was a real... There was a real question about what the what the process should be, and um, uh, and did go ahead and, and had the the clerk of the uh, of the Peace and Justice Committee at the at the yearly meeting level signed a letter. So it's it's you it's know it's, like it's it's out of it's not like it's super yeah it's it's not it's, not the, it's not the common usual Quaker process where um, a letter will be brought up to the meeting business and then seasoned um, and then any recommendations be made and changed and that would usually happen over a couple months um, but um, but there are things that that require an urgent response right um, I mean if you have a business meeting every every two months and then you know the Quaker consensus processes can be so slow anyway it seems just any reasonable person would see that and uh, if you if we're a if we're a society a religious society that has that cares about these sorts of issues that it would be w within a totally normal acceptable thing to do is to try and get an expedient response out um, so it's it doesn't it they just it just doesn't hold any water yeah <laughs> well you know that and I know that yeah, <laughs> but according to them, talking about racism is divisive. Mm. Yeah. And they and they responded to that um, uh, by then. It's it sounds like then they uh, they asked you not to come back to the meeting house. Um, oh well, that came way later. Okay. <laughs> okay, they sent a number of people to elder me. Um, so, so it did happen. You know, and instruct me in what was appropriate and what wasn't. Mm. And that just pissed them off, excuse my use of the vernacular, because my mother is a, is a Quaker. I was raised a Quaker. And I know what is appropriate for a Quaker. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but basically they were trying to snow me into, in, and subtly intimidate me. Mm. Um, yes, um, and and I would have none of it. I mean, they asked me, they actually asked me in one of those, God, we had so many meetings <laughs> to deal with the Sharon Smith issue. Mm. You know, first they tried to say that, you know, we don't promote, you know, political agendas, um, you know, in Quakers. the name of Quakers don't promote. And I said, well, this was not a political agenda since one is justice, not a spiritual concern. Absolutely. And, and, and um, uh, what, did they, what else did they say? They asked me if I would, would be willing to find unity with them and to put my cultural and, and political issues aside to find unity with them in Christ. They actually asked me that. Right, like, why don't you just erase yourself? That's the, <laughs> that'd like... be much easier. That'd be much easier for us. <laughs> they did. 
they actually asked me that. That's one of the things I wrote down in my journal. I was at the meeting, and that's why I would just take notes, because I was trying not to be triggered and kick the mess. <laughs> I was like, let me have a paper and a pen and just write this shit down, because who is going to believe it otherwise? <laughs> I do have to remind you, is, we should find out, is the transmitter down? Okay, I think our transmitter's down, so that's okay, but, it, but we are going to try and, um, it is a radio show, so try it. <laughs> <laughs> But I felt that it's hard to talk about things like I on our first episode, like you, these issues, it's, it's hard to keep it clean on the radio sometimes. <laughs> Oh, okay. It went down because of words I used. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. It was already down, some kind of other thing. It so. was already down. Yeah, yeah okay. so we're not right. actually on the air. We're only on the streaming on the internet. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, all right. But we're still... We're still good. We're still good. Yeah, we know. <laughs> They're not that quick on the uptake. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll clean it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't blame you though, because what you're, what you're describing is really horrific. And yeah, I mean, they literally asked me if I would put my cultural and political issues aside to find unity with them in Christ. Now, I was raised as a universalist friend, yeah, I mean, they and I never saw any different, you know, any any conflict between you know, what I do ceremonially with my indigenous folk and our indigenous worldview between that and, and Quakerism. Christianity, I, I can't relate to. Oh, so a universalist, so uh, for the audience, the difference between a universalist friend and a sort of Christian friend, so it's sort of like the Unitarian Universalism versus sort of... Uh, Normal Protestant Christianity, normal, quote unquote. <laughs> Is that that sort yeah, of? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know, and I have my own theories about what George Fox was really trying to do. You know, <laughs> but that's another talk, not today. <laughs> <laughs> another another show. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, yeah. yeah. So, we're so um, I'm gonna say um, we've been given, we've been given. Oh, oh. So first, okay. We'll see. Uh, so. We've been given permission by this station to go as long as we want, actually, and this conversation is great. So as long as you want to keep talking to us, we want to keep talking to you. Uh-huh. Um, That's cool. But We're good. We're good. Okay, I, great. I, I've got lots of stories. <laughs> and, you know, but we really, I really, the reason I want to talk about this experience with Quaker racism is because Quakers all over the country and the world are looking at what they can do about racism. Yes, yes. So I do and have to. I do have to stop you. Pretty much every yearly meeting has made some commitment to undo racism, or you know, whatever terminology they use. Um, and they're just not doing anything. I mean, they're not making any progress. So I have to cut in for just a second and say uh, you are now listening to KEPW LPFM 97.3 Eugene Homegrown Radio. And this is Friendly Anarchism. We're speaking now with uh, friend Sharon Smith about her experiences with racism in the Quaker community. All right, so the Quakers have all their writing minutes saying that racism is bad and then <laughs> treating you like Yeah, this. I mean, I, you know, my mother was... All right, so... 
um, the first clerk of New England Yearly Meetings Working Group on Race, Working Party on Racism, they called it. Um, so back in 2000 or something like that, late 90s, 2000, while I was still living in Richmond, Virginia, um, at New England Yearly Meeting, a bunch of people, friends of color and white people with children of color, went to yearly ministry and council and said, look, you know, we've got to do something about racism among friends because we're, we're experiencing racism in our monthly meetings, and how is yearly meeting going to address it? Yeah. Um, and so what, what they ended up doing was creating a committee that was um, out of New England yearly meeting, ministry, and council, um, like a, um, yeah, a committee of ministry and council that uh, was called, the, that they called the Working Party on Racism, um, with people who, um, friends from New England, weighty friends from New England, by the way, who, who felt called to address this issue. And my mother was the first clerk of that committee. So while the folks on Cape Cod didn't want to talk about racism and talking about it as divisive, my mother was doing her work at the yearly meeting level as well. Um, and go ahead. Oh, and and nationally, these conversations were 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 growing um, in in yearly meetings across the nation. That's great to have a mother that yes. was involved. And, um, yeah, and so so um, Philadelphia yearly meeting did that a couple of years ago. You know, they came out with a statement of how they were going to undo racism, and. Um, New England Yearly Meeting 2001, they did this whole process where they sent out questionnaires and queries to all the monthly meetings in New England, and everybody was supposed to be working on those in their meeting and give feedback. And then in the four sessions, I believe it was 2001, could have been 2002, um, the body at sessions approved a minute on racism. Now, what happened to me started in 2005. After that, um, yeah. All right, so they've got a minute, so they're good, right? I mean, they <laughs> <laughs> but this is a pattern we are seeing all across Quaker Quakerdom. Mm-hmm. You know, folks want to do right, but they don't know how, and they really want to control the process, and they're not wanting to hear from friends of color that are saying to them, "Hello, ouch, we're suffering here." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk, you know, talk so, I mean, New England Yearly Meeting totally botched what happened with them. Yeah. They tried. They really tried. You know, in the initial days, you know, I was going to the Working Party on Racism meetings along with my mother and another friend from Cape Cod, and we were, you know, they, they knew me. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) before that incident happened so they were aware step by step (laughs) never what but 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 it was it was when (laughs) 
the day that they called the police to have me dragged off the meeting house properly, uh, property wait, uh, for what, disorderly uh, conduct. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> I assume that your cross was at least eight feet tall that you had, were burning on your... Because otherwise... Because of the... You know what I mean? No, like, no, I don't no. Quakers, <laughs> East Sandwich meeting, okay? Remember there was that letter in the about the cross burning, supporting the NAACP. Um, and then people and friends and family were horrified that Sharon Smith would dare promote her political agenda in the name of friends. And um, they uh, actually approved uh, a letter to the editor right then and there that same day in Selma that nobody signed um, that just said uh, Selma Friends Meeting at the bottom. And the whole meeting approved it right then and there on the spot after worship. <laughs> I know this because my mother was there and she told me what happened. Um, she told me who drafted the letter. <laughs> that was the day she decided I can't worship here anymore. I'm going to East Sandwich where Sharon is. So this was a, a difference. Um, this is a difference meeting or different preparatory group wrote a, a contradictory letter to the one that you had written. Yes, and it was a whole lot of words that basically, in a roundabout way, said there's no proof that that cross fitting was a hate crime. <laughs> so, it, so it says your, and then your letter got completely vanished from the archives at the Cape Cod Times? She said, yes, um, it completely vanished. But it was, but the reason it completely, because I looked for it, I asked people that were still on Cape Cod to go looking for it in the archives of the Cape Cod Times, to go into the archives of New England Yearly Meeting, because Falmouth was so proud of themselves, they would have like, you know, six or eight page meeting newsletters where, you know, people would, they had all kinds of stuff in the It's like the longest Quaker meeting newsletter I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and they were so proud of themselves and what they were producing that they would send copies to the, you know, archives that means in yearly meeting, you know, right. so that they were documenting themselves, right? Right, right, of course, of course. He's <laughs> like, can go back and read it later. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so, so, so they had that in their newsletter and it should have been in the archives of the Cape Cod Times because they sent it to the Cape Cod Times and I remember reading it in the Cape Cod Times. But for some reason, you know, what happens when two Quaker meetings are at each other's throats, um, you know, they're contradicting each other in public, mm -hmm. in the press, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> monthly ministry and council, which includes Falmouth, Sandwich, and Yarmouth Court, further down on the Cape, all came together, and the way they, and, and Paul Noonan, who's another story unto himself, <laughs> um, was our representative from East Sandwich Meeting to Sandwich um, Monthly Ministry and Council, um, came back and told me that that was, a, you know, that was a wild meeting because, you know, he and Eric Edwards were shouting at each other, calling each other names, and I can't repeat them on the air. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're such a quiet, demure folk, us Quakers. Well, I was... 
Okay, so Paul Newman and, uh, from East Sandwich and Eric Edwards from Falmouth were, were shouting at each other and calling each other names. Um, but the way they managed to bring each other, back, bring everybody back to unity, was to decide that Sharon Smith was the problem and we had to deal with her. Wow. Oh, man. Um, okay. That, that's how they handled it. Or at least how they tried to handle it. Then they started talking to members of Sandwich, East Sandwich Ministry and uh, East Sandwich Peace and Social Concerns, that's members of the committee that I was clerk of, and try and explain to them that they shouldn't allow Sharon to hijack their committee with her political agenda. Yes, because how dare they? Well, I mean, you were a clerk, so, like, what? I mean, even just, like, if you're going to... I just... I, I'm, but but just, it was a committee process, and the committee tried to explain it to these fools. <laughs> I mean, fools is what they are, right? Yeah, yeah. I, but I'm just... I just go... I keep telling your story. I'm just, like, flabbergasted. I'm having a hard time, like... <laughs> just but it happened. It's real. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's real. It's real. It did happen. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 you know, from the beginning, from that moment, I you know, I was telling New England yearly meetings, working party on racism, what was happening. They were getting regular reports. And you know, from not only that, but I was doing this Quaker anti racism work, you know outside of New England Yearly Meeting, too. At that period, there were several yearly meetings that were trying to collaborate on doing anti-racism work. There was New England Yearly Meeting, there was New York Yearly Meeting, there was Baltimore Yearly Meeting, and there was Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Yeah. Were you having uh, they had They had a conference, at least two different, one conference that I went to in Burlington, New Jersey, okay, where all those yearly meetings were represented. And... Um, I kept the mailing list and email addresses of everybody that went to those things. And I was sending regular reports to all these anti quote unquote anti racist friends yeah. in all those yearly meetings. So, quote unquote. So, a buzz started to, and this was pre Facebook. The buzz started happening in the yearly meetings. You know, what's going on there? And people started calling up. You know how Quakers are, you know. <laughs> goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> Silent in meetings. You know, they were, you know, people from, you know, that Sandwich Monthly Meeting lost their blankety-blank. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I haven't heard. I, I like that. They, they lost it <laughs> when they got a letter from Atlanta Friends Meeting saying, essentially, you know, what's going on with you guys? I hear you're having a problem. How can we help? They lost it. They lost it. That's when they started to get hostile. Because now everybody else knows. You know, abusers and oppressors don't like it when other people get involved in what they're doing in their house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was already hostile, but now it's, like, openly hostile. It's like, yes. like, they were quietly but hostile just to you, and now it's just, like, just open, open, right. fair on you. And New England Yearly Meeting wasn't handling it very well. They were just kind of monitoring the situation, but they weren't coming in saying, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> wow. 
they just worked. I mean, everybody was trying to be neutral, and um, protecting the uh, here's here's uh, here's here's part of the problem. People in Sandwich were saying that their feelings were being hurt and that I was attacking them by calling them racists all over the country and they felt like they needed to defend themselves and that they were not safe in their own meetings as long as I was there. But, I mean, that's the thing about being neutral, you know, the quote, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. So, yes, and I said, say that quite a bit and type it quite a bit, and, you know, <laughs> yes. Exactly, but they were trying to, you know, love and, you know, the people who would who who were the oppressors and understand them and listen to them. And when Sandwich said that, you know, they were hurt, New England Yearly Meeting left me hanging. I asked the clerk of New England Yearly Meeting. I asked the clerk of Ministry and Council for New England Yearly Meeting to intercede to help us stay in process and to help us with a reconciliation process. Yeah. You know what they told me? What did they say? Then we weren't invited by the by the by the monthly meeting. They said that they resented our interference in what they consider a local matter. So we can't interfere. That just sounds like the classic segregationist line. You know, you outside agitators coming in. Like, I mean, that's just that's just unacceptable. Well, and, and, and like even like a, let's let's figure this out. Like coming to the table in a cooperative, like spirit, and then just being like shut down in such a. It's just. It's true, but it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where it's like again going back to this just sort of emotional abuse, classic blaming the victim, like classic. It's just just so gross. I'm so sorry. Well, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I consider that my call to ministry to challenge Quakers on their racism. Yeah. And I've been doing it ever since. How's it going? Are you having any luck? Man, it's been an adventure, I can tell you that. And I've learned, excuse me, I've learned a great deal. Has anybody else learned anything? <laughs> I'm afraid to ask white I'm white people are, are hard to... Well, here's heard, the thing. I, I do believe that at this point, you know, when I met it's Wanda McClinton, and she was just disowned, or no, they didn't call it disowning. My minute of disownment is called disowning. What happened to Ava is that she was read out of her meeting. I was read out of Sandwich Monthly, and I wasn't even a member. I was an attender. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And for our listeners, uh, Wanda McClinton also has uh, an article in Friends Journal. Um, yes. And, and yes, the same issue. Mm-hmm. And in and in a, in a different meeting, and in a different uh, different yearly meeting. Um, and but I, ten years later. Yeah. And I, I also want to mention ten year, exactly ten years later. Mm-hmm. I want to mention for people that are listening <clears throat> that maybe not Quakers that not being a member of a Quaker meeting doesn't mean the same thing as if you're like in a different church situation. It's not like you're really, it's really not that different being an attendee versus 
attendant, you know, you know quote unquote guest or attendant versus a quote unquote well, member. Like there's this thing. It's, it's not. It's not like a, a, a question a, of formal recognition. Yeah, it's just a yeah. So just in case. But there are attendants. Yeah, but 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 the, over this racism thing, there has become a, a, a there are distinctions being made mm-hmm. because. And, and I see the same pattern. So because I had that experience 10 years ago, like, for example, the cross burning was in September 2005, and I received the, the letter of disownment in January 2007. That whole period, crazy stuff was going on. Absolutely insane that I just, you know, all I could do was document it. Ten years later, when I meet up with Avis Wanda McClinton and I see what her situation is, and we are the only two friends of color that I know who have gone through a similar experience, and we totally understood each other. We spoke by, you know, on the phone at first. Um, somebody in Philadelphia yearly meeting who was fascinated by my story and actually took the train to Northern Virginia when I was living there from Philadelphia so she could spend the weekend with me and hear my story. Oh, wow, that's really nice. Yeah, well, there are problems with her later, but... (laughs) (laughs) She knew Avis Wanda from Philadelphia yearly meeting, and it was she that brought us together by phone. And then I went to Philadelphia for their first call, uh, yearly meeting session to talk about, you know, what the Quaker response to racism was going to be. Um, and I stayed with Avis and I got to know her. And over the, you know, the course of the time that we've known each other, uh, which is basically only a couple of years, um, three at the most, um, I've been a really helpful to her because she was going through the same thing I was going through, but she didn't understand it, and I could see the pattern emerging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it all looked and felt like the same thing. Mm-hmm. I could smell them coming. Now I, I'm so good. I am the foremost expert on Quaker racism. <laughs> Trust me on that. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're talking to you. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How how do you think yeah. it is that Quakers have gotten so far from their abolitionist past? You know. Well, here, have you read Vanessa July and uh, Donna McDaniel's book? No, I have not. You must. You must. Vanessa. Um, Vanessa July spelled J U L Y E. And what's the... Donna McDaniel. Donna. Um, it's called Fits for Freedom, Not for Friendship. African Americans and the Myth of Racial Justice and Quakers and some more stuff. African American Quakers and the Myth of Racial Justice. It's a FGC publication. It is required reading for Quakers. Awesome. Okay, great. That's great. I will do that. Because it details the history and the struggle friends had with each other over slavery. Wasn't that and abolition and and abolition? Wasn't that one of the a big issue about why the Quaker meeting and the Friends Church broke with each other? 
Or am I going no. That was different. Okay, uh -uh. that's a different thing. Okay, no. never mind. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, their argument was, was, was philosophical. It had nothing to do with economics or slavery or all Okay, well, forget I said that. No. No, 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 no. But but you must read that book because it's necessary background to understand the history, the, have the historical analysis of why Quakers are so messed up now. Ah, that's great. I thank you for that recommendation. <laughs> and and part of the part of the thesis of that book for our our, our listeners um, is that um, following the Civil War, many Quakers had advocated. Um, for uh, abolition of slavery, but then had turned, um, uh, but then had turned down um, uh, African American people who wanted to become members, wanted to become friends, yes. Um, yes. and refused yes. membership to them. Yes, yes, exactly. And that that history needs to be understood because it is the root from which our current problems arise. Um, and white Quakers today are no better than the average white liberal racism denier. Mm -hmm. um, are capable because of their privileged economic status um, and racial status to isolate themselves from reality mm -hmm. and create a whole, you know, fantasy world that is real for them and nobody else. That's true, you know, especially, you know, working in social justice sort of in a more radical sphere here, um, anarchists often, and people that we're working with, um, wobblies and sort of a more radical elements, often have problems with liberals specifically, like, like, like making our work harder, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's sort of, it's, um, or, you know, sort of coming into situations that are, are being planned and creating a hierarchy and putting themselves at the top of it when, or like stepping in with knowledge that, that's not relevant or, you know, or sort of um, denying situations. I feel like right now a lot of the problems we're having is we're saying with the situation we're in right now with like how under just how bad Donald Trump is and how scary this situation is, we need more, we need more radical, like we need just to be really working really hard on um, a more like local, spe locally specific level, like shoring up community connections and shoring up um, strength and making self-sustaining local systems of sort of, if we can, you know, like self-governance and like strengthening neighborhoods associations and these sorts of things because what we're looking at is like the failure of the federal government system, but then um, a lot, sometimes that work can be undermined by liberal, liberals in, in sort of yeah, like fighting it against, always is. you know, it like, always is. yeah, you know, like it in Portland, undermined by liberal. Yeah, you know, people of color have been fighting for justice for the last 500 years, mm -hmm. and liberals don't appreciate that. Number one, number two, have this need. I'm going to say this, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. White people are culturally addicted to exploitation and control. No, that's they absolutely true. handle not being in control. That's absolutely true. It is true. an addiction. It's an addiction to power and privilege and control. Yep. And it's called, inter there's a term for it called internalized dominance. Mm -hmm. Internalized. 
So the idea of sort of an anti-authoritarian system that we want to see implemented in the world is the idea that these sorts of internalized dominance and like creations of like many hierarchies that are then hidden, which create, you know what I mean, the sort of situations where it's like, no, we're all equal, except for there's this hidden hierarchy, therefore I can treat you badly. Those are all authoritarian yeah, tendencies. We're, we're not all equal. And yeah. we were never all equal. We haven't been equal ever. Exactly, exactly. So they're able to say, like, oh, no, so if we're equal, then we don't have to deal with this situation. You know, so, like, the idea is that those are all authoritarian tendencies, and in order to have a true, like, an equal, an actual sort of equal just society, we have to get rid of authoritarian tendencies both in society and within ourselves. So then when you so you know what I mean so like I'm you know those same things with like internalized dominances are like this like authoritarianism that needs to be taken away from our process and any of our systems and that's, that's sort of the things I like about the Quaker thing too is like um though like one of the reasons that I am a Quaker and I enjoy being a Quaker is the idea of that inward state and outward action are component parts of a single whole so like if you're not recognizing these internal dominances you know, especially as like as a white person, like recognizing these internal dominances and these like internal authoritarian and racist tendencies, like you have to first look at them in order to be able to tear them up, t take them apart. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's yeah, I understand, and that's the white pe that's white people's work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. that's not my work. Yeah, my exactly. work is you know finding my power and asserting you know myself. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really great point. So the internal outward thing is and, people are asking. And so yes, and and when there is conflict in the mixed race situation, if there are con there's conflict like a racial conflict, and those people who are doing the quote unquote mediating are neutral and not and giving equal weight to each story or each. Um, protagonist that, um, you know, they're not really um, weighing what's right or what's just. Right. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, like you said, you know, somebody has an addiction to, to dominance and they're not aware of it. I mean, white people are raised to believe that they are dominant. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the default. It's sort of and implicit. people of color yeah. are raised to believe the same thing. Mm. Well, you know, in my school growing up, in my, ele in my elementary school, white kids pretty much had their own playground. It, it was sort of in the systemic sense where there was like the um, ELP program, which was like the smart kids had their own kind of, their own thing within this sort of the neighborhood school and like the quote-unquote smart kids which was one of the groups I was in had people from lots of different neighborhoods because there were only a few different schools that ho hosted the ELP program and somehow like almost all of the kids in the ELP program were white and from outside the neighborhood um, except for like a couple Chinese kids a couple Indian kids um, one Tongan girl yes, I, yeah, I and then and then the ELP program we had our own playground which was much nicer the rest of the people had uh just like a f the rest of the people like everybody else in the entire school got one big soccer field and like we had like the we got the we had the basketball court and like all of these things and sort of like i just remember looking around and being like how come and oh the neighborhood i should say the neighborhood was almost all hispanic so right right and it's these things where it's like 
they don't say the white kids get the playground. It's not like implicitly said like it's segregated, but it obviously is. Right. Right. So, you know, so without it and then also not having those signifiers saying like, look, it is implicitly segregated. You can attack that. It's just as a white child growing up in that environment, just for some reason, we get to have the better stuff and we're in the smart class. So therefore, you just draw your own conclusions. Right. Right. Exactly. But it's about that's the structural piece of it. Mm hmm. You know, white people control. So so the way white supremacy maintains itself is by controlling the narrative, the processes, and the resources. You know, white people control. So the way white supremacy maintains Think about it. In every racial situation, and every situation is racial, believe you me. Yeah. White people maintain their dominance by controlling the narrative, the processes, and the resources. Okay, controlling, I'm going to write this down, controlling the narratives, the processes, the processes and the resources. And the resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is that all, all that privatization stuff. You know, Europeans invented privatization. Nobody else had that. Yeah, um, property is theft. I mean, and it's it's true. I mean, and, uh, Naomi Klein talks about this in, in the shock doctrine, the idea that, um, you know, following major catastrophes, uh, corporations use the sort of shock and paralysis of government to then justify going and selling things off and saying, oh, it's so bad. Well, if you just do this thing real quick, it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll fix your whatever, whatever in the short term. And then it sells off these public goods. Um, but more broadly, like, is, is a way, um, is both, like, a practice continuing colonialism where um, in countries like Haiti, then demanding, corporations coming in demanding that Haiti sell off natural rights resources, sell off uh, various exactly. things. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. colonial, <laughs> colonial Europeans just coming in and making real, real bad deals with the Native Americans about concerning property rights because they made them up. Oh, believe me, I know all about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, so it's... I, yes, uh, the more I study research history, my own history, and, um, you know, how it's tied to the history of this country and my ancestors, it, it is, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. White people have a whole lot to pay for. Yeah. A whole lot. I mean, I don't know if there is such a thing. as So, so I've established this thing called grassroots reparation. And I am inviting Quakers to engage in grassroots reparations. Um, and the definition is to give according to your means without waiting for an act of Congress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A testimony for generosity. Okay? Because Quakers are stingy as. <laughs> <laughs> You know I'm right. Yes. (laughs) I mean, my goodness, y'all, and it's not like they don't have it. (laughs) That's the that's the other thing, you know. Like I've noticed um, with the with the with the um the divide between sort of the on the left between the radical spheres and the liberal spheres is the issue of money 
you know, like there's, there's just, you know, like just like people working in social justice don't have the resources to be doing the kinds of work that are supposedly forwarding the sorts of things that the entire left, including the liberal left, want to have happen. You know, so it's like if 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 it's if you're you know if you're gonna write a resource, I'm gonna write a minute condemning racism. It's like you know, go give like the the money is worth more especially you know so the sort of grassroots reparation it's like if you have the money like write the minute and then give money to your local like NAACP or you know whatever group is working on the ground and for for our listeners a, a minute is uh, is basically like a, a resolution or, or a commitment on behalf of, of a uh, on behalf of a meeting um, that's a great idea the grassroots reparations um, yeah so, you know, you can do that individually, you can do that as a monthly meeting, you can do it as a committee, you can do it as a yearly meeting. I'm just pushing that agenda. Mm-hmm. That's my cultural and political agenda. <laughs> Part of my ministry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To encourage a testimony of generosity and grassroots reparations among friends. Well, and if you're going to look to Christ, you know, for this, um, I consider myself a follower of Christ, and you're supposed to give till it hurts, you know, you're supposed to, like, give everything you got, and, like, we are, there are studies, you know, he wants everything, but if you're not going to go that far, <laughs> then, you know, there are studies showing that once you're at sustenance level, you know, if you're, like, have a living situation wage where you've got what you need, then more than that doesn't actually improve your quality of life as far as, like, how you how you um, experience your life. So if, you know, you said in Oregon that is $70,000 a year, I think. Mm-hmm. So, and so then if you're making above that, then there's no reason, even just for your own quality of life, especially as a Quaker, if you have the simplicity testimony, to not give away everything else. Mm-hmm. Really, you know? And yeah, and Quakers really, you know, when they start talking about simplicity and giving away and, you know, that's fine, but they have some really quirky ways of making decisions, like, for example, <clears throat> the sanctuary movement. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a good cause. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but there are meetings in AFSC and FGC and, and Friends Committee for National Legislation and, you know, who knows who else. It's busy trying to figure out how they can have a Quaker uh, presence or impact in the sanctuary movement. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make a name for themselves with that and trying to motivate Quakers to support that uh, that idea. It's a worthy idea, but well, here's the thing. They are living on stolen native land, <laughs> and they do not acknowledge the people whose land they are sitting on Mm-hmm. Most of whom do not have a pot to piss in mm-hmm. or a place to call their own. So that needs to be addressed. So when we start talking about sanctuary, we also need to talk about grassroots reparations and a testimony for generosity. That's very interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard that from sanctuary that argument about sanctuary before. One thing that I saw on a personal level um, was a very nice person uh, who a liberal with good means who works in um, 
uh, social services saying that they were thinking about going into private practice because they wanted to do something more fulfilling, like with refugees. <laughs> and uh-huh. just hearing that for me was like, like the local community is really, really hurting. Um, and it's it's not as glamorous, you know. Like you don't uh-huh. get the alley, exactly. you don't get the star. In, you know, you get to say right. like you're working with refugees, but it's like, like the. It, but then it's the question of like, but you know, but the people who need it the most need it the most. So should we, you know, be working? Well, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't be doing you know a Prussian Olympics either. But, yeah. You know, Quakers have enough to do it all mm. if they decide they're going to be generous. Yeah, and you know, and, and not every meeting is the same, but certainly, um, and I think this is perhaps even more true um, in on, among East Coast and, and older meetings um, that there's yes, there's this absolutely there, there used to be a saying that Quakers came to America to do well, and they did. Um, that like there's a lot of rich older friends, um, and they're sort of like old money and. Um, certainly there are also destitute and poor friends also, um, but, um, not too many. Well, they, not they, too many. they do exist though. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's different sure. culturally on the West coast. Okay. The... I'm sure I'm one. Okay. I'm a poor, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, don't... I generate Quaker anti-racism minister. I don't, I don't have a whole lot of cash on hand. <laughs> um, we might get, we're going to so... start selling t-shirts though. <laughs> Oh, I didn't mean, I mean that I, I was wondering if it, there's a difference on the East Coast or West Coast, although I did hear that I think our meeting has a couple millionaires who or someone. Is, yeah, that, not true? is that not this true? This is what I'm talking about. Maybe that's not true, but I know there's definitely, I mean, Quakers were bankers, like, and successful bankers. Exactly. So there's exactly. definitely. Exactly. And, and if you go to the East Coast, Quakers were slave ship owners. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Abington Friends Meeting of Abington Quarterly Meetings came, where Avis was disowned recently. That meeting, Abington, was built by slave ship owners. Quakers were in the, they were in the slave trade in Philadelphia. That's how Philadelphia Friends got their wealth. Mm. Wow, I did not know that. Were those beautiful? Yes. I've been in those like meeting houses in Philadelphia. I went to Philadelphia last summer, and those meeting houses built are beautiful. They were built by slaves. Money. Wow, slave money. Yeah. Pretty... Well, they're yes. not as impressive as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and the endowments that Quaker schools have are huge from Quaker money. I mean, from from slave money. Absolutely. And there's been, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, there was a. Uh, there's been a contest for some time um, of some older meetings where there were donations um, to these meeting houses where friends were were had donated, and then um, meetings were uh, there was a moral contest for a while about um, whether or not friends should invest um, should continue to hold on to uh, money that came from uh, came from these traditions um, and. Um, no. Well, they could always put it in my grassroots reparations fund. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, well, it's hard. It's, you know, when I, I've talked to people that have money, 
you know, it's very, it's like, well, it's, you know, and there's a very, a lot of defensive, defensiveness about it. And as somebody that, you know, doesn't have money, you know, it's like one of those things like, well, it's easy to say because you don't have money to give away. It's like, you're right. I don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't, you know, so it's like, um, it's just an interesting, how do you, how do you get people to give up privilege? Here's the thing about, I mean, because I have some uh, privilege, but I don't know what to like, well, not, here's not what I've, I've, I've learned about Quakers that have a lot of money and Quaker meetings and Philadelphia yearly meeting in particular. They use money to manipulate people and bring about what they want to bring about. It's a control thing. Oh, yeah, money, so, for money example, is power. for example, you know, when... I was going through what I was going through in Sandwich Local Meeting, and when Avis was going through what she was going through right now with uh, Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, no friends of color have supported either one of us. Really? None. I didn't even get a phone call from Vanessa July asking me if I was okay. Mm. Why do you think that she was? Knows who all of the friends of color that are, um, this is an observation now, and you don't have to believe me, but just do some research, <laughs> okay? All of the Quakers who are part of yearly meetings that are members, that are people who, um, you know, you hear about, such as Vanessa July, who is the coordinator of FGC's Ministry on Racism, and the co-author of that book I recommended. Um, people who get elevated to positions where um, they're considered preferred or, you know, weighty friends. It's always, there's always some tie with Quaker influence and money. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when, when Avis was going through her situation, there was a black clerk at Philadelphia Yearly Meeting mm-hmm. who treated Avis like she resented having to be expected to handle the Avis Wanda upper Dublin situation. Um, and she came to Upper Dublin and, you know, would say to Avis, well, what do you want? You know, we came there, we spent the whole year there, they got, you know. She was the white, her handlers in Philadelphia yearly meeting wanted her to resolve the situation and it was not resolvable and they couldn't convince Avis that she was wrong and the meeting was just viciously in denial um, and doing extremely mean, nasty things to Avis just to get her to be disgusted and leave. And nobody would call them on it. Nobody. They still won't call them on it. The meeting that they had where they disowned Avis, the clerk of Philadelphia yearly meeting was there, the clerk of Abington Quarter was there, and they had some woman who isn't from Upper Dublin monthly meeting that came in, to, was invited to come in and clerk the meeting so that members of the meeting could participate rather than have to worry about clerking. Um, and the first law she laid down, the clerk, was that nobody, no outsiders, no visitors would be able to 
speak during the meeting where they're going to disown it. Wow. And the clerk of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting and the clerk of Abingdon Quarter allowed that to happen. They were sitting in the room. They didn't contest it. They didn't question it. They let it, they let it go. You know, and it's, it's situations, I, I think situations like that where, um, you know, you see injustice in front of you, um, it's not, not confronting that, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the moments, you know, in, in your life where, you know, you, you've got a choice and you just, you have, you've got to make the choice for justice, have to stand up for just things, um, and... I can't, you know, I can't speak for friends in other meetings and, and people in other places, but um, I, I do think it is important to stand up, you know, and it's... Well, but here's what, that, but that's not happening. Yeah. Avis is standing up, I'm standing up, and we're being dismissed as disruptive and got emotional problems and, you know, why do we have to even deal with these people? Mm-hmm. Where is this at? Where is this at right now? Is in the... But, well, okay, so so to give you, you know, where it's at, Avis has been disowned. She tried to go to the quarter and, and, and ask them to address the situation, and they chose not to. Um, then um, they decided that it would be best if Avis... Uh, became a member of Green Street Meeting, which is in Philadelphia City, and she's a suburban girl. She's out there at Abington Quarter, Upper Dublin. Um, you know, she's in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. Why should she have to go into the inner city to go to a Quaker meeting? Um, and they're trying to tell her what's best for her, and they talk to her like she's a five-year-old. It's infuriating. Yeah. I mean, she forwards emails to me and sometimes, you know, photographs of, of, of things. And I mean, and, and, and the saddest thing to watch is friends of color who buy into that and, and, and help it along. I remember reading about in Hollywood where, um, like, director, um, female directors of color are trying to get more representation in in Hollywood and they're being actively worked against by some of the women of color who are higher up in the hierarchies in Hollywood yes. like fighting against yes, exactly. the ability of exactly. getting more women of color into the studios it's uh, exactly exactly and that's what you see among friends of color too yeah fighting against the ability of getting more women of color into the studios we uh exactly we are getting close to the top of a, of a second hour, and I wanted to ask an, another question um, about um, following up with, with what happened in um, the East Sandwich meeting. Um, in the sorry, what happened in the East Sandwich meeting? Um, uh, following um, uh, following all of the the incidents that happened, that there was a, um, you write about that there was, there was a schism, um, leading to the founding of two new meetings, uh, one Barnstable and the other one, and forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce this, is it Cuffy? Cuffy, uh-huh. Um, 
and so I wondered if you could if you could talk about those a little bit um, and ha the the formation of those and and what that what that sort of looks like today um, for our our listeners who may have read that story. What's you know, do you know what's uh, sort of come of those meetings? Well, I know what's going on with Barnstable's meeting, um, and they're still meeting. That's where my mother goes. Um, uh, I don't know what's going on with Falmouth, um, but I, uh, or East, or Yarmouth Port, or East Sandwich, last thing I heard was that, well, you know, they changed the locks on the meeting house to prevent me from coming and worshiping, right? I can't, what, <laughs> what, what is wrong with these people? It, they closed it down. <laughs> what is wrong they with these people? Down. Hmm? I said, what is wrong with these people? That is just like, like, really? Is that necessary? Like, what? <laughs> like, apparently, what? They, they apparently thought it was. They're just like afraid they're going to walk in one day and you're sitting there in silence quietly. Like, that's <laughs> that, like, how, how, no, like, that would be traumatic. That. It's about control. Yeah. They just, didn't want uh, me there and I wouldn't leave. They're going to walk in one day and you're sitting there in silence. Uh, they couldn't handle not being in control. That's exactly what it was. I mean, the day they called the police, you know, we were having a conversation on the front porch of our fellowship hall at East Sandwich during a potluck. And one of the women turned to me and said, it's time for you to go home now, Sharon. The way they talked to Avis. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> you have every right to be there. Like. <laughs> That's great. Okay. That's great. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what happened. And we were on the front porch of the fellowship hall, and I went to open up the door, put my hand on the doorknob, and the chick who told me it was time to go home put her hand on my wrist. Oh, no, Which no, no. Just nope. Way out of line. Nope, yes, next. She nope. Did. That's what happened. Oh, man. That is what happened. I can't believe that. How? No, no. And there were two other women there. Two other Quaker women there. They tried to block the door with their body. What? I'm so confused. Yes. This, is, this is so <laughs> over the top. This is just very extra. <laughs> I can't. Right. All because Sharon would not do as she was told. Well, when you're being told to do stupid, racist stuff, like, you know, I'm glad that you didn't... <laughs> I'm just telling you, <laughs> you know, like, I'm just telling you, yeah. this is what's called internalized dominance. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right. And it becomes vicious when, you know, we don't do as we're told. Okay, and I, I, my mother will tell you I was the I was born defiant. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's great. I asked my mom once, hey, mom, do you remember that time I respected authority? And she's like, nope. <laughs> you, I think it's what's really remarkable about that story is that, I mean, the, the belief there must have like been in their minds and some of they, you know, believe that they could control your body, you know, and could control you. Yeah, touching, like, grabbing your wrist like that, that is such a violation. And that's, like, such a, like, I have the right to your to your physical, to your body, and to your space, like, 
and that's yeah. You know. Yeah, but but that but that's not how it was framed. Okay, controlling the narrative. All right, I got the door open anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so these three silly women were no match. <laughs> they, they were trying to intimidate me and dominate me, and I was like, "Oh, please!" <laughs> That's great. And I just opened the door and walked inside. <laughs> I was furious, though. <laughs> Absolutely furious. It's just so, so critic- like to like track this back to where this started. Like you're you're being, I, it's you know what I mean. Like how how these things spiral out of control when these like dominant structures and authoritarian like ways of understanding interpersonal relations between people just spiral out of control. You know, like this all started with a cross being burned at an... You know, every time they would try to get control and it didn't work, they would up the ante. Right. And they would try something different and that wouldn't work. And they would try another tactic and that didn't work. And it was really, it was frustrating for them. I mean, they were furious. So just I'm like talk about some angry white people. Yeah. <laughs> so it just like escalates and escalates. And I just was crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just kept trying. I mean, they had one meeting where they were discussing whether or not they were going to get a no trespass order out, order out on Sharon Smith. Oh, that is so dramatic. These people, like, calm it down. Take it um, down a notch. Yeah. And I was at the meeting. I mean, I was sitting in the room. They were, they were just like... My talk- mother was there. <laughs> like, just like in front of you, like talking about you like you're not there? Or like um, even just saying this I mean, anyway? A, it, was a, like, it was a called meeting of Sandwich Monthly. Mm. To discuss what to do about Sharon Smith. And the item on the agenda was whether or not they should get a no trespass order. This is a wi- the witch hunt. Well, I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah, okay, yeah. don't get all twisted out of shape about it. Just recognize that it happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, okay. I'll and look at look at this is that this is that white fragility thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Look at it for what it is, and and analyze it. What is it really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because. Only by understanding it and how it functions are we going to dismantle it. Okay. Okay. So just don't get, you know, bent. Do you think was I was I just um, was I just displaying white fragility with my reaction to the story? Okay. Uh, not quite. I mean, but you are responding emotionally. It would be white fragility if you were accusing me of attacking me for telling you the story. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to check in. And wanting me to be quiet about it, not talk about it, because mm-hmm. it makes you uncomfortable. That would be white fragility. Ah. Okay. So, slight difference. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And um, at that meeting, too, you know, they, the clerks asked that visitors not say anything. Because, you know, once this thing got out of hand, started, um, and they told me I couldn't come back to worship for several months, and then, you know, they would accept me back 
um, uh, contingent on standards of behavior. So I was like, I'll have it. <laughs> they did not send me a registered letter with this crap. Seriously, after they called, I didn't finish telling you about the day they called the police. Well, right after the day they called the police to escort me off their property. These chicks, okay, I walked inside, <laughs> furious. And said, "What is blankety blank 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 wrong with y'all?" <laughs> Somebody came up to me and said, Shh, "We're trying to have a potluck." Oh, that's a terrible potluck. <laughs> yeah, Sharon, be quiet. You're loud. We're trying to have a potluck. Wow. Yes. So I got a plate of food and I sat down. <laughs> and then the clerk of the meeting, one of the people who was trying to block the door, came up to me and said, let's go outside and talk about this, because I was not going to be quiet for long. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going anywhere with you. Well, this is an interesting... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. This is an interesting story because one of the things that we talk about um, as anarchist is as space-based social justice, is taking uh, taking up space, is like you know, yeah. reclaiming the spaces that right. should be our spaces yeah. like in a physical way. Right. So like mm -hmm. I, this story is like really, really great and really interesting here. You like talking about how you took that physical space that is your meeting house, you know, and like is your community and how, you know, that that, and you know, that's just, I just, I just saw, I just was listening to your story and thinking about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I never once ever thought that it was any more their meeting house or than mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it is your meeting and house. And one of the arguments they got into with the meeting, so all back to the same day, uh, Rachel, my friend Rachel, came up to me and she said, you know, you are really agitated and angry, and I understand that. Why don't we just go for a walk outside so you can talk to me and blow some steam off and, you know, just, you know, it's a beautiful day, let's just go for a walk. And I said, okay. So Rachel and I go back out onto the front porch through the front door, and the same chick who put her hand on me <laughs> said, don't go far, the police are on their way. And I said, oh, who called them you? You? Did you call them? She said, yeah. I said, well, what did you call them for? She said, um, you assaulted me. Um, she actually said that. Wait, and you were, you were actually leaving, and she told you to stay so that the cops could come make you leave? Is that? Right. Well, <laughs> well, I'm just telling you what she said. So, I mean, so that is just an interesting word thing. Cause that, word for like, Don't go far. The police are on their way. Because that makes it pretty clear that this is about dominance and control and has nothing to do with, like, exactly. trying to get you out of the space exactly. or something. It is very clear. Mm. Very clear. And she said, I assaulted her. Because that makes it pretty clear that this is about By 
her grabbing your wrist. <laughs> I don't understand. Um, and a, a brief pause here uh, as we come to the top of the hour that for our listeners out there, this is KEPW LPFM 97.3 Homegrown Radio. Uh, you're listening to Friendly Anarchism, and we're talking with guest speaker Sharon Smith, um, who has been telling her story um, and has been talking about racism and uh, Quakers and Friends and... Um, uh, thank you so much for being with us, and please, please continue. Although we are going to need to wrap it up in yeah, probably well, I can do that probably um, pretty soon. I'll tell you. Um, so you asked me where things are now. Um, well, you asked me several questions, and we were just sort of not following any specific format. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. I just I have all the questions. It's that's so that's much all here. good. Yeah. <laughs> It's all good because I mean every story leads to another story, and right. you can just find yourself in not going for Yeah. So, so um, Rachel and I got to the top of the driveway on Quaker Hill in East Sandwich when the first police car drove up, and um, it stopped right in front of me. Um, and, uh, the officer got out of his car, like he, you know, was on urgent business and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, oh, I think you need to talk to those people up there. (laughs) They're the ones who called you. They obviously want to talk to you. (laughs) You know, I said, they called you. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, don't you smart mouth me. Oh. Um, <laughs> I was getting ready to go off on it, and Rachel said, sure. This person's carrying a gun here now. <laughs> Whatever, ACAB. <laughs> she reminded me <laughs> who I was and who he was mm. and how badly it could be. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> well... Yeah. Sir, I'm not the one you need to speak to. Those women standing in the driveway there, you need to talk to them. So Rachel convinced him to go over there. And and then that's when some other people came out of the fellowship hall to find out why there were three police cars in the driveway all lined up behind each other. You got three <laughs> police cars? They... Three, I don't know if they even wow. have more than three police cars in East Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they were bored. I don't know. <laughs> what on three police cars? Why they seem to travel in packs, don't they? <laughs> I haven't seen. I've seen that in Eugene lately, where the cop cars are just like they'll like travel like five cars at a time to like pull one person over. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty. Wow. Anyway, well, that's you know, who knows? Who, who knows what they told these officers when they called them? Yeah. I still don't know. Because nobody would tell me. Mm-hmm. And there was no police um, report filed. Because uh, um, nothing Well, there was, but it said, uh, it, it said disorderly conduct. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting terminology, disorderly, because it's like there's order and you're 
like dissing it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and like right. it doesn't mean anything. It right. doesn't mean any. Yeah, it's just like you're not right. doing things the way that we want you to do things. Yeah. So we have this one specific right. way right. of right. saying that right. on paper. But who, but who knows what they initially said? Yeah. Okay. Um, but those people who came out of the meeting house were elders of the meeting, and a couple of the men came. We're dealing with three crazy women here, and some of the men came out, and one of them was an elder Quaker historian that had been, was on the Peace and Social Committee, Social Justice Committee, right? Um, and he was arguing with the clerk who was claiming in front of this officer that she she had a right to protect the meeting and that they had to do something against all this disruption and people were afraid and didn't feel safe. And the elder historian was saying to her, excuse me, Missy, but you do not have the authority to make a unilateral decision without having a committee meeting. You just can't do this. And she was arguing that she had a right as clerk to protect the meeting. Pro- protect protect the meeting? Well, yeah, they made it an issue of white people's safety. Yeah. When, when I was reading your story, too, I, it, it just really popped out at me the idea that um, this, uh, became, this story in particular um, painted, sort of painted you with the sort of like dangerous black woman narrative. You know, as though exactly, like, exactly. Dangerous, yes. Dangerous, uncontrollable, dangerous, out of control. Um, we're afraid. We don't feel safe. Um, we don't know what she will do. She's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Seems like there's okay. some uh, not just emotionally like... disturbed, emotionally disturbed, and you know we're not qualified to handle it. It's sort of it's sort of this like there's this white fragility on like an emotional field, and it seems like there may also be some physical white fragility if grabbing someone else's wrist like puts you or makes you puts you like in physical pain and harm's way. <laughs> like it's it's just like such a silly argument. But it's yeah, but I'm telling you what the narrative is, and I told you white supremacy maintains itself yeah. by controlling the narrative. Yep. The processes and the resources. Yeah, yeah. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I learned that through through my experience. What were the resources you think in control in this situation? Because the processes, you know, kicking you out of the process and definitely like trying to change the narrative around you by vilifying you. But were there? Do you think there are? Um, no, well, the only the difference between me and Sandwich and uh, Avis and Upper Dublin is that. You know, I had I didn't wasn't depending on them for anything. Mm. So they couldn't take resources. So they had to double down they on process. They couldn't control and... my re- no. They couldn't. Um, so they tried every other trick they could think of. Right. You have to double down on the narrative <laughs> and the process if you, you know, can't also control resources. Me, you know, um, so they couldn't take resources. And another dimension to the story is that. You know, I was living in Mashby, which is in, in, you know, the Native community, Wampanoag community there. My sister's married to a Wampanoag. I went to college with a bunch of people that are Wampanoag. I lived in the community. You know, I dated, you know, Wampanoag. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, our lives were intertwined in some ways. And there's a myth. Uh, well, no, it's been substantiated. It's not a myth. 
Quakers first came to the Americas and they were persecuted and run out of Boston and the Flemish colony, they found refuge among the Wampanoag people on Cape Cod and that there was, you know, a bit of this historic bond or relationship of friendship between Quakers and Wampanoag. Mm. Um, and the history is true, but, you know, the relationship of Wampanoags and Quakers um, has devolved into Quakers, you know, um, valuable property on Cape Cod, and Wampanoags are struggling to hold on to what little they have left. Mm. Um, and Quakers did not want to endorse or send a letter to Congress or whoever they're supposed to send it to um, to support the Nasty Wampanoag's um, federal recognition claim. And the arguments they were using in the Quaker community were, were um, well, they're going to want our property if they get federal recognition. Uh, mm. I'm just telling you, and that was before, you know, I got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, um, and they give away turkeys to the Wampanoag community for Thanksgiving and Christmas at the Tribal Council office, and that's about the extent of the relationship um, today. Uh, but that's a side story. You know, part of it is, though, that, you know, I have relatives. My mother's a Quaker. My sister is not a Quaker, and she's not interested in being a Quaker. Um, but, you know, she interacts with the Wampanoag community. And, you know, there was gossip that went from the Wampanoag community to the Quaker community. There's always two or three friends that are, you know, interested in maintaining the friendship with Quakers. I mean, with Wampanoag. And, you know, interact with that community more than the rest of the Quaker community does. And the rumor was that, you know, Sharon um, was not interested in uh, combating racism, that she was just acting out against her mother, and isn't it too bad that she can't appreciate the white part of herself? Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, and that's what that's what the Quakers were spreading among the Wampanoag. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they're just trying every different type of narrative. And I'm telling you. And, and like psychological warfare, like we were talking about earlier, like that's just like that's just like classic, um, you know, spreading lies in the community to make it as though you'd be less believable. Yeah, delegitimizing yeah. your. Thank you. Oh, yeah. And the people that weren't there that day that they called the police, those three idiot women got on the telephone and called everybody they could think of and said, Sharon assaulted somebody. We just really have to do something about her. Mm -hmm. Help. I mean, they did that. Wow. <laughs> okay. People came up to me that didn't know me from Adam and said, are you Sharon Smith? Yes. Well, you know, you're really trying to ruin our faith community. God. I was like, okay, do I know you? I'm not sure I remember ruining your faith community. I don't know who you are. Okay. <laughs> People from from um, Mount Toby Friends meeting in Western Massachusetts that I ran into at the yearly meeting came up to me and said, you know, Sharon, I really can't support you if you're going to continue to behave this way. That's so paternalistic. 
Well, I told you, they talk to us like we're children. We're no count. I read an article talking about how um, it, in some ways, is easier to fight racism in the South than in the North because it's more easily identifiable, and you know, or then then in the North, it's like it's people. It's like, oh well, but we're in the North, you know, we are we're not the racist ones, and it's like more systemic and hidden, so it's. Um, it was no, I don't article. think so. I don't think it's a North-South issue. Okay. Because it's the same all over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> same, <laughs> different. Day. It, might, it might look different, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no difference. Okay. And even after the North gave up slavery, they were still benefiting from slavery and slave made good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I mean, it's all connected. Mm. And that old wealth is still benefiting from that. I mean, and yeah, yeah, and arguably, you know, economically, the um, the the focus around which um, the the labor has always been a question, right? With um, uh, even after slavery, the um, uh, sharecroppers, and then with you know, as Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, sort of like prison labor. Um, it's I mean, remains an ongoing question. In U.S. society, but um, Sharon, I, I had another question that I wanted to ask you about. That um, it sounded when East Sandwich um, ended your um, your involvement with the meeting, um, there was in the article you also mentioned that there was two other friends um, who had been members. Who yeah. did they mm -hmm. leave, or were they or were they forced out of the meeting? It's complicated. Um, <laughs> because one of those people was my mother, mm. <laughs> and she had been clerk of Sandwich Monthly Meeting. She had done every job in that monthly meeting. Wow. Um, been treasurer and everything. Okay. <laughs> Positions of respect. Yeah. Yes, and she had trained several clerks herself, um, and taught me about clerking and Quaker process and, you know, philosophy, if you will. So I was well steeped in my Quakerism when these folks tried to teach me that it was something else. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put that past on you. <laughs> no, which really made them angrier because they would try to use faith and practice and Quaker process to do something that I call process violence, mm. as you know, mm -hmm. okay, as a term, the definition is using Quaker process and tradition in order to cause harm or hurt. Yeah, it's something that when, like, working in sort of anarchic worker cooperatives and sort of, like, neighborhood associations and sort of things trying to use this um, direct democracy and kind of horizontal process, that's another, it's a big problem is sort of, like, it's the same problem where people will abuse the situation, you know, certain certain types of people will abuse a situation to claim um, equality or to claim that the process is going too slow or like all of these things in order to create these like dominant systems and sort of like take over the process. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And control the process, control the narrative, control the resources. Mm. Whoa. 
So, but here's something I really feel like I, I need to talk about. Um, and and um, I want to say, answer your question quickly. Uh, Barnstable Friends Meeting is still operating, and my mother and Rachel were disowned along with me in the same minute, um, which they all proved. <laughs> uh, I was not there when it happened, but they did close the meeting house down and put it under the care of the monthly meeting. To prevent me from coming there with my supporters, um, and um, for several months, the people who were part of the sandwich meeting were told that they um, should worship elsewhere. Wow. And that's when a group of people started to meet in my mother's living room um, for worship. Most of them were folks from the racial justice committee. Um, and they ended up getting a building, um, and now that became Barnstable Meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they didn't care um, whether they were members of Sandwich or not. They said, you know, whatever, <laughs> and went about their business, because these were not new friends. I mean, these were weighty friends that had been friends for generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um my mother, are you kidding me? <laughs> seven generations of Quakers. Wow. Okay? So, I mean, these are the people they were disowning because they supported Sharon Smith. And no other reason. No other reason. Um, and said, you know, you're wrong. You are wrong. Why don't you act right? So they and these were the only two people that were willing to not go along with the, the, the insanity. I mean, it was a, a, a good study in history. Hmm. So they had to, because, I mean, how established, like, your mom is and how you, and you are, they had to just, seems like they just had to try extra, extra hard to go over the top to delegitimize you. Because, like, if you, because, you know what I mean, like, you're so legitimate that it takes just an extreme measures to sort of pull that delegitimization tactics on people like you and your mom? Well, they didn't really attack her. I mean, most of the time when the stuff happened, she wasn't there. She was like out of town visiting my brother or something, you know. So <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> the day they called the police, she was not there. Do you think they would have called okay. the police if she was there? I don't know. I can't even expect it. Yeah. Yeah. But they did plenty of other crazy stuff, like when they told me I couldn't come back to meeting until September or whatever they said it was, and then I would have to, you know, adhere to standards of behavior. People from the yearly meeting came and worshipped with me on my mother's beautiful deck in Nashville, you know, a couple of weeks in a row, and then I said, I can't do this. I am called to go back. I don't care how they react, but since they accuse me of assaulting somebody, you all need to come with me because it'll be my word against theirs, and I'm not playing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's another thing is like, it's you a... need to come with me. So people came with me from the yearly meetings to go to worship in Sandwich, and the first day they saw me, they were furious because they had told me when I could come back under certain conditions, and I came and they told me I couldn't. Yeah, it's reclaiming They space, were shocked. They, they were in shock. One woman that wrote the same silly woman that told me it was time to go home and they grabbed my arm, got in her car and left because she was so insulted that I dared show up after they told me I couldn't come back until such and such a time. Wow. 
But it's one of those things where it's like that that sort of is that sinister denying space to people, like keeping people out of the physical space is a way of like showing controlling, controlling. oh there you go exactly. there you go that's what it was controlling resources exactly exactly so like yeah yeah so yes. you're reclaiming that resource in that space and then right right oh interesting i re- i love that i love that framework and then the next time i came back the next week they had people standing blocking the meeting house door so that i couldn't come in wow and I had friends with me from the, from the yearly meeting. One friend, Lisa Graustein, who was uh, actually at the time a member of the Working Party on Racism, but she was also the Young Friends Coordinator for the England Yearly Meeting. She was there, and she came up to me and told me that one of the people on permanent board that was from Falmouth threatened to have her job taken away, and she shouldn't be here, and she should mind her own business. Wow. <laughs> kind of economic sense. Yeah, yeah. Lisa laughed it off. She says, well, I don't need the money anyway, so I don't know what he thinks he's who he thinks he's <laughs> But then she told, walked up to me and told me that. Um, um, and Shakers are not the only threatening people to get them to come into line with the narrative that Quakers choose to promote and to believe. Yeah, I think I think probably being white trumps any sort of other identity in a lot of these situations. <coughs> you know, just, you know what I mean? Well, you know, I wasn't, I, my, my mother's a white girl and she didn't know how to teach me to be wary of white folks and they're <laughs> that was that was a good moment of control. Shenanigans. <laughs> Shenan- uh, nonsense. And white nonsense. Yeah. Like most, you know, people of color have have mothers of color who teach them. You know, just don't mess with those white people because you know it's a problem every time they have problems. Uh, hmm. But my mother didn't know to teach me that. She taught me, you know, spirit led activism. Okay, and following a leading and yada yada, speaking truth to power. There's a difference speaking truth to power as a white friend than it is being speaking truth to power and being a friend of color. It's just so messed up and sad that that's something that black parents have to teach their children. Yeah, but what I'm telling you is that I didn't know that. So I learned it the hard way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, lots of people of color just take it for granted and they're like, yeah, well, that's just like some white nonsense and keep keep it moving. But that is the reason why we have so few friends of color. Because most people in their right mind are going to, the minute they run up against that stuff, they're going to be like, okay, I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) You know that's true? So, what is it about the handful of us that say, that's what I'm studying. Mm -hmm. Oh. I don't know if we had time to get into that topic now. I I think we actually... Another time. Another time. I wish I would. In a... We have a number of interviews lined up for a while, but I would love to do an, um... 
possibly, well, I don't know. I can't, I, yeah, it would be not right for me to promise that right now because we don't have a schedule. But, like, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I've just been, I've really appreciated it. And thank you so much for being being willing to call in and talk with us. Um, you know, I think this is this has been a really, um, this has been, in a lot of ways, an, an open conversation. I really appreciate you being willing to talk about talk about your story and your experiences um, with us and, and sharing that. And, um I think that uh, Quakers have serious questions, um, and in particular, white Quakers have very serious questions we need to ask of ourselves and of our meetings. Um, and I'm very, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come and told your story here. Um, so, thank you, thank you, Frenchair. Yeah, thank you so much. You are more than welcome. I just want to leave you with one thought. Please. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yes. One thought. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem we have with con- con- confronting racism among Quakers is, uh, is is the serious lack of engagement of Quakers in the issue. Mm-hmm. We're not willing to challenge one another and, you know, be more proactive on the issue among friends. We're willing to talk about racism anywhere in the world, in the country but we're not willing to confront it among ourselves. And that there is why we're not making any progress. Mm. That's, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's been real, folks. I enjoyed this. I'm so glad. We, I had a great, this was wonderful. You you are just a wonderful person to talk with. I got so much, I love that framework of the um, internalized dominance. That's going to be really helpful to me in my work. Um, yes, so. important understanding. Um, so thank you, friend. And um, we are going to be uh, phasing out here. But um, for our listeners out there, this is KEPW LPFM 97.3. Uh, you've been listening to um, uh, you've been listening to Friendly Anarchism uh, on Homegrown Radio. Thank you so much for joining us, um, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday afternoon. All right, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. <laughs>